pray. Lord, it's always a delight to be in your house with your people. We are people of the book, as your people have always been. We love your word, and we don't love it as much as we should. We confess we probably don't read it as much as we should. We confess. I pray, Father, in this hour that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is completely docile to your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would send by your spirit and your word correction and comfort. I pray, Father, that you would fill us with the, the fullness of your spirit Give us a passion for living for you, for serving you, and enduring all things for you, and enjoying the delights that come from you as we serve you in this world. And so, Father, we praise you for this hour, praise you for the singing and the praying and the scripture reading already. And we have heard from your word, and we have responded by singing praises. And now, Father, we ask you to speak to us. Through your book, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it is my hope and earnest expectation that we will finish 2 Timothy today. But I do have a lot of ground to cover to get there. There's a possibility this may be a two-week sermon, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to talk to you this morning about expectations, expectations. When two people enter a relationship, each comes with certain unspoken assumptions about how that relationship is going to proceed. Husbands have unspoken relation or expectations of their wives, and, and wives have, have unstated expectations of their husbands, and many vexing problems in relationships are owing to misplaced or unrealistic expectations, un unwholesome desires or untruthful desires. But it seems, you know, even, even though we walked into the relationship thinking that our eyes were both opened, now it seems perhaps that you were blind to some unwelcome realities in the other person. I mean, you can kind of put those things off. You can kind of hide who you really are, but after you get married and maybe a few months in, uh, sooner or later, you have to start acting like yourself. And when you do, your, your wife or your husband may be a, a little surprised. This dynamic is generally true in personal relationships, but it can also come about after a person happily throws him or herself into serving Christ with a whole heart. Think about it. When you first embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, you were eager to live for him, to take risks for him, perhaps even to suffer for him. You wanted to serve him and make an impact on your world. You you feel like you couldn't possibly be in a better, more satisfying and fulfilling life place than in serving the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart. And so you throw yourself in completely. But then, unexpectedly, something happens. Perhaps one day you discover that, to your unhappy surprise, that that some people really aren't interested in hearing the message that you bear. Hearing the good news is not good to them. They're not excited about it, rather they're offended by it. And, and maybe, maybe on a, in an alternate scenario, to your great shock you discover that some dear saint that you are assigned to work with is maybe not the person you expected them to be. And maybe they're kind of hard to get along with. Or worst of all, you learn that one of your former ministry partners, someone that you have engaged with, maybe in church, maybe in, the stu in student ministries or with the children or maybe with the evangelism group that goes downtown or any of those, maybe it's on the mission field and you find out 
that they have abandoned the faith completely. You're devastated by these things and overcome with disappointment. Now, don't get me wrong, serving the Lord on the mission field or in pastoral ministry, to be sure, or in evangelism or in counseling, I mean, these things really can be some of the most delightful experiences of your Christian life. But if our expectations don't match reality, we can find ourselves unnecessarily hurt, disappointed, and disillusioned. We might even quit serving altogether. I did not intend for this to be a message about the church plant, those who go and those who stay. But it occurs to me, even as I stand here, that maybe, maybe this message is for you, especially those of you who are leaving and are going to have a whole different set of experiences with the new church than what you have had here over the years. Just be ready. As best you can, make sure your expectations are in line with reality. Make sure your motives are in line with God's motives. The reason I appreciate the passage before us this morning is that it, it kind of peels away the rose-colored glasses off of our eyes and, and gives us a rather balanced and realistic view of what it's like when we're committed to living your life, not for yourself, but entirely for the glory of Christ. And since we're talking about expectations this morning, we might ask, what expectations should we have when we choose to go on the church plant, or go on the mission field, or become a pastor, or whatever it is, or, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you just you want to live all out for Jesus. Maybe you're a college kid or a high schooler. Well, as we watch Paul interact with his circumstances this morning, we see, I think, five such expectations. But before we consider them, let's do what we always do. Let's take a moment to stand together and read our text for this morning. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. I'm starting in verse 6, knowing that We've already preached that, but for those of us who need a refresh on context, and I always do, and let's start with verse 6. Paul, at the end of his life now, is getting ready to be executed. Verse 6. For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to me to stand with me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles, so that all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus, Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was, who was ill, at Miletus. 
Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the other brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And you can be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I've entitled this message, The Difficulty and Delight of a Life Lived for Christ. The Difficulties and Delights of a Life Lived for Christ. Paul was at the end of his life. He's now reflecting back on it and telling us what's kind of going on in his heart right now as he's in jail. What expectations should we have when we choose to live all out for Christ? Well, I said there were five of them, and here's number one. You should expect the shadow of loneliness. You should expect periodically the shadow of loneliness. Look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse, yes, 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Now, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. Now, it goes without saying that Paul's in jail for the last time. He's been condemned by the emperor. He's sitting on death row. He's experiencing, among other things, loneliness. It's not that there are not other human beings who are in reasonable proximity. The reality is there were guards. There were cellmates who were also condemned to die, no doubt. But Paul is alone in the sense that he is removed from his brothers and sisters in Christ. He is separated from their fellowship and help. In that sense, and for that reason, he's lonely. This is how God wants the great great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, this is how God wants him to finish his race. The same as Jesus finished his race, alone, alone. Not that there weren't any other people around, but he's alone. And the people who were closest to Jesus, you remember what they did? They deserted him. Paul's experiencing the same thing. As you strive to live faithfully and biblically for Christ, there are going to be occasions, seasons, when you feel very much alone. Not because you've done anything wrong, not because the Lord is punishing you, but because this is just life. It may be because you're, you're married to an unbeliever who cannot share the joy the, of fellowship with Jesus that you love so much. It may be because everyone you work with is an unbeliever, leaving you the only one in that place to hold your little light high with, without the help of a fellow believer. It's hard. It may be at school where the other kids make fun of you because you're the only one stupid enough to believe in God. Or as a homeschool mom, you may find yourself yourself isolated from spiritual conversation with other godly women because of your commitment to serve Jesus by disciplining and discipling uh, your children at home. It's hard. It's, it's, It's a little bit isolating. You may be a pastor and find yourself in a church that's discovered that expository preaching and reformed doctrine is the last thing in the world they expected to come from their pulpit, and now they're trying to force you out. Then again, it may just be God's call on your life to be single. Or as I said earlier, you may be going with the church plant, and you find that things aren't working out exactly the way you wanted, and you feel alone. If these thoughts apply to your life, you may find it strangely encouraging to discover that Paul knows how you feel. And he felt that way without sinning. And he responded even to the way he was feeling in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. Paul had a a little time before his sentence would be carried out, and so he determined to try to get his beloved son in the Lord, Timothy, to come to him. He makes this clear back in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says to Timothy, I long to, to see you that I may be filled with joy. And then here in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Do your best 
to come to me soon. And then in verse 13, when you come to me soon, a little presumption maybe there, when you come to me, the assumption there I think is, and I know you will, I know you'll give it your best effort. And verse 21, do your best to come before winter. This is three times in a row, not including chapter one, four times in the book now. He said, come to me, come to me soon, come before winter. He, he needs his cloak it's going to get cold for him. If you are sincerely striving to live for Jesus, there will be times when you really crave and don't have the fellowship that only a Christian brother or sister can bring. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who spent his share of time in Hitler's prisons, once wrote the following about fellowship. He says, It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in a common Christian life with other Christians, praises God's grace from the bottom of his heart, let him thank on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. He talks about being bounced from jail to jail, prison to prison, and periodically, he would meet someone from a different denomination in jail for a different reason and they would find out that the other was a believer and they would have a short conversation. I remember one time, Eric Mock and I were, uh, we had just landed in Belarus, which at that time was a closed country. And we were very concerned about who we would bump into and the KGB, we knew, would be following us. And um, we were on, we got off the plane, we got on the little tram, and I'm a little nervous about where we're going. And I start humming a tune. And I don't remember what hymn it was, but I start humming this hymn, and, and just to myself. And the man in front of me turned around. And he looked at me and he says, that's a pleasant tune. And I went, oh. <laughs> and then he said the words are even better and I thought this is a brother and then we had a very cryptic exchange of words and it was as if the Lord sent this brother to encourage my heart and I, and I thought about that I'd forgotten all about that over the last few years but when I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week, I thought, this is what he experienced. I mean, 10 times worse than anything, 100 times worse than anything I've ever experienced. But just when you're lonely and you find a Christian brother or sister to talk with about Jesus, there's nothing like it. But we who have access to that fellowship every day take it for granted. Paul knew he would never be able to preach or minister in Ephesus or Philippi or, or even in the churches at Rome, though he was in Rome. He would never be able to do that again. It was done. He was at the end of his life. He was alone, and he longed for fellowship. We might ask, but why is Paul alone? I mean, he had friends. He had more friends than probably any of us have or would ever have. Why, why was he alone? Where were they? And that's a good question. And consider the following. Number one, um, Paul lost friends due to sin. I mean, look at verse 10. This is the, the next verse here, right? For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted, deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Paul lost friends due to sin. We don't know what Demas was into. We don't know what aspect of the world had captured his heart and drew him away from Christ, or at least from Paul. 
You know, I wonder, why did he go to Thessalonica? Thessalonica. I know somebody will come to me later and say, you pronounced that wrong. Um, was there money there? Was there a woman there? We don't know. In love with this present world, he deserted me. In chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, All who are in Asia have turned away from me, among, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. All who are in Asia. Now, Asia was the Roman province in which Ephesus, which is where Timothy's current place of service was, it seems that there were key people who could have supported Paul, and perhaps at his arrest and his imprisonment, maybe they were there, and they did nothing. They, they failed to help. And, 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 I, and I can't help but think of Jesus when he was arrested and all the disciples ran for their lives. They were only concerned about themselves. And, and maybe something like that, like that happened. Maybe Phygelus and Hermogenes were were well-known associates of Paul. Apparently, he expects Timothy to know who these men were. It's likely that they all ministered together. And Paul is saying, look, even Phygelus and Hermogenes abandoned me. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we learn that Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth. They left Paul in a doctrinal kind of way. They departed from the truth. And they led others astray as well. One of the most difficult things that Chris and I have experienced over more than a quarter of a century of ministry together is the loss of dear friends and co-laborers who shipwrecked their faith, who abandoned the ministry for no good reason, or who disqualified themselves from ministry. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Nothing can cause more grief when you're serving Christ and to see someone that you've loved and you trusted and they throw it all away. I heard about a famous preacher uh, this past week. Um, and I want to tell you his name, but I, I, I uh, want to make sure I don't get the name wrong. So I'll just say an unnamed, well-known pastor said that when he was a young minister... He had great ambition. He wanted, to, he wanted to really do great things for God. He wanted to build a, a big ministry and impact the world for God. But he said, I have now, in my years of ministry, have seen so many dearly respected brothers, fellow pastors, ruin their lives and ministry by personal sin and moral failing, men that I looked up to and respected and thought they had it all together, so that now when I pray about my ministry, I only pray this, Lord, just, just please enable me to cross the finish line without dishonoring your name. Paul was separated from his friends. And some of it was because of sin. But there's another reason for separation. Paul was separated from some of his friends because of reassignment. He says, verse 10, Crescens got assigned to Galatia. Titus got assigned to Dalmatia. Thought of them yesterday. I was driving down the road and there was a Dalmatian. I wonder if they were <laughs> named after that place. Tychicus got assigned to Ephesus. I mean, they were nowhere near Rome. And remember, there's no social media. There's no FaceTime, no text messaging, no telephone, and not even reliable snail mail. I mean, even in our lifetime, my wife and I have, over the years, told our kids, now that they've been to college, some of them have been to college and have left for unknown lands. Um... You know, when, when we finished college, we basically lost touch with our friends. There was no way really easily to communicate. You can't just get on your phone and send a text or a tweet or whatever. Um, it, it took effort. And if you were separated from them, you were really separated from them. And Paul lamented, only Luke is with me. Now, that kind of struck me funny when I read that. 
Uh, only it's almost as if he's saying, you know, <laughs> the only person the Lord has left me is Luke. I mean, he's like the last guy I want. <laughs> uh, that's just the way it kind of reads. It can't be true because uh, Luke was a known brother. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, and I would challenge you to do it just to look for this. In the book of Acts, Luke is, Luke is recording. He's done his research, so he's recording at the beginning, half, half, the first half of the book of Acts. Uh, you have the, the they section. They did this, and they did that, and Paul went here, and Paul went there. And then it transitions about halfway through, and you have all the we passages, where he says, and we got on the ship and we traveled, and we were shipwrecked, and we were on an island, and Luke was with him, the beloved physician. It may be that Luke is the reason Paul stayed alive in his ministry, because of Luke's care. So he wasn't, he wasn't dissing Luke, I don't think, but what he was doing is saying, everybody else is gone. Again, for my wife and I, some of the sweetest fellowship we've ever enjoyed in ministry has been with men and women whom we have labored with in ministry, but whom we only get to see once or twice every decade or so. And when we're together, the fellowship is so sweet. But we can't enjoy that. We can't enjoy that. In the past week, I've heard from Mike Nichols, our missionary in Korea, and I've heard from Bill and Becky Petit. Uh, Bill married my wife and I when we were very young, and uh, they're in Japan. And in both of their uh, newsletters, they said, if you would like for us, when we're on furlough this year, if you would like for us to come visit uh, your church, then please let us know. And I sent a letter to the, I sent a note to the elders. We need to contact them. We want to see them. We want to fellowship with them. And that's the way it was for Paul. He missed these dear, beloved brothers and sisters. Some of Paul's friends were reassigned to distant lands to further the gospel far away from him. And the point of all of this is to say that one of the difficulties of living all out for Christ is that sometimes it's a lonely business. So expect the periodic shadow of loneliness. It's a normal dynamic. It is a normal dynamic of a life lived for God. Part of the reason I'm telling you this is I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to be disillusioned. I don't want your expectations to be romantic and, and otherworldly. Don't let your imagination dictate how you respond to how things will go in the future. Be realistic. Secondly, expect the necessity of reading. You must read. That sounds like a big jump, doesn't it? But look at verse 13. Verse 13, we read this. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books. And above all, the parchments. Now, this is interesting. Here is Paul, the apostle, whom God has used to write inspired text of Scripture, and yet he was a reader. He read both inspired and uninspired texts. Um, I have to confess to you that I don't know what he means by books and parchments. He says, especially the parchments, maybe the parchments were either letters that he hasn't finished writing yet, or maybe they were copies of portions of Old Testament scriptures. People have written dissertations about this, and at the end of it, we still don't know. Paul just doesn't tell us. What I think we can infer from this verse is that Paul was comforted, instructed, and helped by reading, especially reading Scripture, but reading other books that help him understand and apply the text of Scripture or that give him uh, 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 models to follow. In our day, we are blessed to have biographies that have been written 
Listen carefully, my friends. I, I really want you to hear this. If you are going to serve Christ by ministering his word in any capacity, you need to be a reader. Um, I remember when John McKenzie came to Brent Osterberg and I and said, I think I, I really want to go into ministry. And we said, well, get your parents. We're going to have a meeting. And we sat down with him. And here was the message that we communicated to him. Uh, you've enjoyed... Um, student ministries, you've been involved in the evangelism ministry, etc. But here's what you need to know. You will be entering the life of a student. Are you prepared to spend the rest of your life reading and studying? Turned out, unbeknownst to him, maybe to his family, he ended up being a great student. Loves the Word of God. Loves the languages. But if you're going to be a minister... If you're going to minister directly in any capacity, you should be a reader. Even if you're ministering to young children, you sh your, your mind should be full of the things that you're learning or being reminded of. Now, this may help some of you. I give you this exhortation, and I say these things as a pastor who finds it very difficult to read. That may be a surprise to you. I read very, very slowly. And even then, I have to reread much of what I've already read. It's hard. It's hard work. But if you're in, in the same category as I am, just know it's worth it. It's worth it. You have to be a reader. Paul was a reader. Now, Charles Spurgeon once sorely chided his fellow pastors for thinking that they could get behind the pulpit and preach a whole sermon without any study. Uh, it reminds me of that Andy Griffith episode where they have a pastor come to their church, a guest speaker, and when he finally gets in the pulpit, he says, now, ladies and gentlemen, I've been sitting back in this chair uh, asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have me say to the good people of Mayberry? And Charles Spurgeon is about to say, don't you ever, in his inimitable style, and here's, here we go, get ready. Uh, sometimes um, uh, Spurgeon had a little bit of a barb, as you'll hear. He says, some of our brethren think that a minister who reads books and studies for his sermon must be a very deplorable specimen of a preacher, a man who comes up into the pulpit and professes to take his take his text on the spot and talks about as uh, any quantity of nonsense in the pulpit is an idol for many. He's saying, this kind of people you love when they come up and don't know what they're going to say. If, he says, if, if he will speak without premeditation or pretend to do so and never produce what they call a dish full of dead men's brains, oh, that is the preacher that you love. But how rebuked they must be by the Apostle Paul, he writes. He is inspired, yet he wanted the books. He had been preaching at least 30 years, yet he wanted books. He had seen the Lord, and yet he wanted books. He had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wanted books. He had been called up into the third heaven, and had heard things which was not lawful for a man to, edder, uh, to utter, yet he wanted books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wanted books. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher, give yourself to reading. And if, but if you think this is only for preachers, Spurgeon continues. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. <laughs> Brethren, what is true of the minister, this is still Spurgeon, what is true of ministers is true of our people as well. You need to read. Renounce as much as you can any light literature but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritan writers and expositions of the Bible, we are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to spend your leisure time is, listen carefully, to be either reading or praying. Paul cries, bring the books, and I say, 
join in that cry, end quote. I love that. And it's a rebuke to many who don't read and to some of us who perhaps have, uh, are not reading as much as they should. We should be reading and growing. Turn something else off. Cut something out of your life so you can read. Now, do not think we can grow as Christians without it. And certainly you're never going to grow without reading the Bible. If that's all you can do, then just read the book. Read the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient. They are the only inspired book. They're the only God-breathed writings in the world. Read the book. If you, if you don't have time for breakfast, make time to read the book. But I, you might say, someone might say, I, I don't have time to read. To you, I say, consider this. If you read a mere 10 pages a day, 10 pages a day, uh, in 20 days' time, you will have read a 200-page book. 10 pages a day. I asked one of my kids, how quickly can you read 10 pages? And he gave me the answer, and I thought, I am a dumb father. <laughs> it takes me three times that long. Um, but you can do this. You know what? We have a library out here. You know why the library is out here? Because we want you to be borrowing books. You know why we have a bookstore in there? Because we want you to be buying good books. All of them have been vetted. All of them are good books. Buy them. Read them. Borrow them. Read them. Paul loved his books. And if we're going to pursue a life lived for Christ, then we should read. We should read. I remember the first time I picked up Thomas Watson's book called A Body of Divinity. It's uh, like a systematic theology written back in the 1600s. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. And it captivated me just absolutely captivated me. I started devouring anything written by Watson. If you want to read a Puritan who's pretty simple to read and deep and rich and wonderful, read Watson. You say, which volume? Doesn't matter. They're all great. They're all great. So, beloved, read. And let me just challenge you teenagers. I know there's lots of other options. Be different than the other teenagers you know. Read. Read not, because, not just because of school. Read because you want to grow deep in your faith. You want to know Jesus better. Read. Okay, expectation number three. If you're going to live all out for Jesus Christ, number three, expect to make some enemies. Expect to make a few enemies. Look at verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me much great harm, did great harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. If you're going to pursue a life that is truly lived for Christ, you must brace yourself for the reality that some people will be offended by your life and by your message. In fact, Paul was emphatic on this point. In chapter 3, verse 12, you can just turn one page back, right? It's a short letter. 3, verse 12, he says, all, all, not just pastors, but all who desire to live a godly life will be, what's the word? Persecuted. Persecution has all kinds of forms. It doesn't always mean being burned at the stake or shot in the gulag. Some people will simply turn their back on you. Some will defriend you. How's that? Others, however, will it will actively attempt to cause you harm, perhaps in the workplace or somewhere else. Some believed that Alexander was like one of the merchants. Maybe he was one of the merchants in Ephesus, Acts 19, who made a living out of creating little replicas of the temple of Artemis. When the gospel started changing lives of the people around that region, they began burning everything related to their idolatry. 
It's, it's much like the Great Awakening when the bars all closed because men's hearts were changed. This worried the merchants. This upset the merchants. Listen to their logic in Acts 19, 27. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis is, will be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Well, that sounds very flowery and very religious, but it, it really comes down to the money. Um, the truth of the matter is that they, they didn't really, they probably didn't even believe in Artemis. They were merely making a living off of the temple merchandise. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The result was that a riot broke out, people were harmed. Back in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, Paul said, I was called to be a preacher of this gospel, which is why I suffer as I do. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul tells Timothy that this kind of trouble is nothing new. 3, verse 8, he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. There will always be those who are trying to undermine gospel progress, undermine the church. All you have to do is pay attention to the news a little bit. Some of the mo most recent things were just unbelievable, bogus attacks on the church. The world we live in seems to me moving in a direction that will demand that believers are willing to personally suffer. Already some have lost their businesses. Already some have faced discipline on the job. The history of the Christian church is, has been one of persecution, not so much in the U.S., at least not recently, but all around the world Christians have suffered for following Christ, so don't be surprised if you run into some people who will become your enemies because of your love for Jesus. This is just normal. Let your expectations be formed by Scripture. If Paul were here today, he would, he would say a couple of things. And I know that because the first one is in chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier. Or in chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must patiently endure evil. Just assume it's going to happen. And when it does happen, maybe your heart will be, will be prepared to respond in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. But these should be our expectations. So, so what I'm pressing back against is any idea that if I'm a Christian, then I'm going to live my best life now. Or the people are, are, are going to love me more for it. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to unify everybody. I, I came with a sword. I didn't come to bring peace. There's going to be division. There's going to be, people say, doctrine divides. That is absolutely true. And that is one of the purposes for doctrine. It's supposed to divide. It's supposed to divide between what's true and what's not true. So don't, be surprised if there are people in your life as you're living and speaking about your love for Christ and his word that they won't like you for it and you may develop some enemies. So don't be caught off guard if you're suffering for Christ. It's not something unusual. It is to be expected. And so expect to make a few enemies. Number four, expect to be strengthened, however, by Christ. Also, expect to be strengthened by Christ. Notice Paul's repeated use of the term, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. In 14, he trusts that the Lord will repay his enemies, specifically, specifically Alexander the coppersmith, for his evil deeds. More than that, however, Paul's testimony was that even though my enemies tried to harm me and my friends failed me, the Lord was faithful. Behold, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord would not abandon his servant. 
It was the Lord, after all, in Isaiah 41, 10. This is all through the Bible. In that passage, he says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You just keep standing. By the way, in Ephesians chapter 6, the whole passage about spiritual warfare, he doesn't say attack. He says, stand. Stand. Just stand your ground. Paul had a long history of trusting the Lord in times of trouble. And no doubt that's why he commanded Timothy back in chapter 2, verse 1. Listen, see if these words sound familiar. This he's commanding Timothy to be strong, be strengthened, excuse me, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And remember when, when we were back in chapter 2, I remember us talking about this, these first, this first verse of chapter 2. What he's really saying is, be strengthened by the unmerited assistance that comes from Jesus when you need it. Why is it that when we find ourselves in a tight spot, we turn to almost everything and anyone else before we run to Christ? Paul is saying, turn to Christ. Expect that Jesus will be with you by his Holy Spirit to help you, to comfort you, to give you the wisdom you require and to fellowship with you. Some of you re may remember the biographical message I did on John Patton a number of years ago. He was a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, the islands in the South Pacific. His work on the island of Tana was what made him initially famous. He, th this is the man who, when he told his, past, his congregation in Scotland, I'm leaving for the mission field. And they said, you're what? leaving for the mission field. Where, where will you go? I'm going to the New Hebrides. And one of the older saints, one of the senior saints in the congregation said, but Mr. Patton, they're cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. To which he responded, Mr. Jones, or whatever his name was, you are 76 years old, and soon you will be eaten by worms. <laughs> Whether I am eaten by worms or by cannibals makes no difference. I go to the New Hebrides. And it was a rough go. He lost his wife, lost his child. He was attempting to reach a tribe of cannibals there with the gospel. And toward the end of his time on that island, things took a bad turn, and the tribe started searching for him to kill him all over the island. His friend, who was a convert from that tribe, his name was Norwal, urged him to hide himself in a chestnut tree while the natives were combing the jungle searching for him and the other missionaries. What would be going through your mind while you're sitting in a chestnut tree hearing muskets fire and the cries of those who are looking for you to kill you? Here's what Patton writes after this event. He, he did survive. He says, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live before me as if it were yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus himself. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves, and the night air played on my throbbing, throbbing brow, as I told all of my heart to Jesus. And then he says these famous words, alone, but never alone. If it be to glorify God, he writes, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, 
You have a friend that will never fail you. Not then, not ever. In Paul's day of trouble, he leaned on Christ. And he firmly believed that even in his death, the Lord The Lord's gospel to the Gentiles would continue to be proclaimed until they had all heard the message. Look at the second part of verse 17, uh, the end of verse 16. He says, may it not be charged to them, but, verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. And verse 18 says, the Lord rescued me from every evil deed. He rescued me from the lion's mouth and rescued me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Lord had rescued him from the lion's mouth. We don't know if what happened at his arrest almost ended in his death there. And we know that the Lord rescued him in the past. Paul was reflecting back on God's past grace toward him. And he was using that to inspire his heart to trust him for future grace. One day he would receive the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, would award him on that day. That was his hope. That was his joy. He would be with Christ. And that's what you can expect if you strive for Christ, to live for Christ. The Lord will be with you in the struggle He will fellowship with you. He will strengthen you. He will continue to advance the gospel through your life. So expect to be strengthened by Christ. To him be the glory, Paul says, forever and forever. Well, there's one more expectation. Expect rich fellowship with the faithful. We're going to end on a happy note here, these last two. Expect rich fellowship with the faithful. When you you give yourself wholly to Jesus and you say, Lord, take my life, let it be consecrated to you. Do with me, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. When you come to a place where you're willing and eager to do anything God wants, and just know, it's not just going to be difficulty. There will be difficulty, yes, but there will be sweet fellowship with Christ and with the faithful. And so while it's true that Paul was largely alone, there were some friends who were available and loyal. Luke, the beloved physician, was by his side. No one doubts that Timothy did everything he could to get there in time to see Paul before he was executed. And Paul instructed Timothy that as he made the journey toward Rome, that he was to stop off and and pick up a former reject, namely John Mark. And it was Paul himself who rejected him. It was over the issue of whether John Mark should be allowed back on the team that divided Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas took John Mark. Paul picked up Silas. He who was once useless, now useful. Bring him along as well, he said, Of this young man whom Paul once considered useless, he says, now bring him, bring him. He is very useful to me in in ministry. I wonder if, I don't remember the dates for the, the Gospel of Mark. I do remember that it was probably the first of the Gospels, and maybe Mark had written his Gospel before this time. What a time this must have been as they gathered around Paul. These four men. It's as if Paul was calling an important meeting. I mean, here we have four men. You have Paul, Timothy, Luke, and Mark. They were all key players in the advancement of the gospel. I mean, think about this. Timothy was to be the one who picked up the mantle of Paul in ministry, and everybody knew it. I mean, he was, he was taking the place of the great apostle to the Gentiles. He wasn't going to be an apostle, but he was the apostle's disciple. And between Luke, who wrote two massive contributions to the New Testament, namely 
Luke and Acts, Mark, who wrote the first of the four Gospels, and Paul, who wrote 13 inspired epistles, and that little meeting, perhaps in their cell, were the men who wrote fully half, more than half of the New Testament between those, well, three of the four men. I mean, can you imagine the fellowship <laughs> that you enjoyed, that they would have enjoyed? And you can hear Paul saying, Mark, what happened to the ending? What happened to the ending of the book of Mark? It was, it was so abrupt. What were you thinking? <laughs> and he would say, that's how the Spirit led? Um, can you imagine the conversations? Can you imagine the planning they must have done? It must have been an important meeting. We know nothing about it. Or maybe it was just sweet fellowship. I, I, I can't help but think, you get four leaders, four big leaders in a room, they're going to talk strategy. What do we do when you're gone, Paul? How should we view Timothy? What should he do first? What should he do second? What should we all do? How do we strengthen the brothers? How do we strengthen the churches when you're gone? How do we keep them encouraged? There must have been some meeting. Can we even begin to imagine what Mark experienced as he was embraced and welcomed by Paul? Must have been a breathtaking moment. And then there were all the other friends who probably would have been there with Paul if they could have. 19, verse 22. I don't know why I put 19 in here. There is no 19th chapter of 2 Timothy. But look at the names that he gives us. We covered Mark, but look here. To him be the glory forever and ever. Okay, so that's the end of the letter, but he's not done writing. Verse 19, that's where the 19 comes from. Greet Pris Prisca, that's Priscilla, right? Prisca was her abbreviated name. And Aquila, it's husband and wife, best I can tell. And, and by the way, they were the ones who, uh, who were tent makers. And Paul had to pick up a trade, so he became a tent maker. That's how he got to know these two. And under the persecution, uh, Priscilla and Aquila got thrown out of Rome, and they had to go elsewhere. That's where they ran into Paul later, uh, this is the same Priscilla and Aquila who were the ones who confronted Apollos, pulled him aside and said, Apollos, you know we love you. And uh, there's just some things about the gospel that you don't, don't have quite right. Can we just talk to you about that? And apparently he received their counsel. This was a godly couple. Erastus remained in Corinth, he says, and I left Trophimus ill in Miletus. He left him sick. Now, that's a whole other topic, but uh, many believe this was an indication that the sign gifts were ending. Why didn't Paul heal him before he left? Could it be that the sign gifts were ending, just as Paul said they would? He, and in any case, he left him sick in Miletus, but he loved his brother. And then he says, do your best to come before winter. Um, it's interesting when you remember um, the biographical message on William Tyndall. One of the, the last document we have from him is his appeal that the curator would allow him to have a coat and a hat because it was cold. And he said, would you also bring my Hebrew scriptures, my Hebrew grammar, so that I can spend my time studying the word of God. And then he has Putin's and Linus or Linus. We probably should say Linus, otherwise we'll think of Charlie Brown <laughs> and Claudia and the other brothers. And then finally he says, the Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. Grace to you. Grace to you. It's a wonderful book. Uh, this certainly goes on near the top of the pile of all of the scripture texts that I have preached over the years. This has been a wonderful, wonderful study for me, as I hope it has been for you. Let's pray.
And Lord, I don't want to presume that every person in this room or hearing my voice has surrendered to you. Lord, I know that you can use your word in ways that we don't fully comprehend to quicken the gospel in the heart of a man or a woman. And I pray, Father, that your word and your spirit would create faith in the heart of some young person here who is yet to surrender to Jesus. Pray, Father, that you would fill them with the joy of that surrender and be glorified in their life well lived for Christ. These things, Father, we pray you will be glorified in. And so we ask in Jesus' name.